0: here in our worship service what an awesome God we serve appreciate those who have led us in our worship service so far those who will continue to lead us as we conclude in just a few minutes and appreciate all of our visitors who we have with us we want you to know that you are our honored guest we hope that you'll stick around and let us get to know you you your presence encourages us and we're thankful that you're here If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Haggai for the last time. Haggai chapter 2. And we're going to be finishing up our study of this book in verses 20 through 23. If you'd like to follow along in your copy of God's Word, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to wrap up this series of lessons that we've entitled Rebuild in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. From 1996 to 2000, there was a TV show that ran for four seasons called Early Edition. Did anybody ever watch that show? Anybody ever seen this show before? Okay, one or two. I think that is maybe why it only went for four seasons because I had never heard of it. I had never watched it before, so of course I'm not recommending it one way or the other. But I think the plot of this show is pretty neat. The main character's name is Gary Hobson. Gary lives in the city of Chicago. Every single day, the first thing that happens to him in the morning is he supernaturally and mysteriously receives the newspaper for the next day. So if it's Monday, he gets the newspaper for Tuesday. If it's Tuesday, he gets the newspaper for Wednesday. And because he's reading the newspaper for the next day, he knows what's going to happen in the future Because he's reading the headlines for what's going to happen tomorrow, he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so with that knowledge, since he has a knowledge of the future and he sees the headlines for what's going to happen the next day, throughout the show, he spends his time trying to help people, trying to prevent certain tragedies, trying to prevent bad stuff from happening. Equipped with the knowledge of the future, he's able to act and he's able to serve. He's able to help. As we go to Haggai chapter 2 this morning, and we look at verses 20 through 23, as we close out the book of Haggai over the next few minutes, God offers some headlines that are coming to the people of Judah. These are headlines not for what's going to happen tomorrow, like in the show Early Edition. These are headlines for Judah, not for what's going to happen the next day, but headlines pointing towards what's going to happen in their future. In this text, God makes two promises to the people of Judah about how He's going to act on their behalf, which is a little bit different than what we've seen throughout the rest of this book. Whenever we look throughout the rest of Haggai, God talks to the people of Judah about the past. Remember in chapter 1, He talks to them about that 15 to 16 year period. They return from Babylonian captivity. They're returning to the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And he talks to them about their priorities, how their priorities were out of whack. They were so busy rebuilding their own homes and rebuilding their own lives, but what about God's house? What about the temple? For 15 or 16 years, it continued to lie in ruin. He talks to them about the present. In Haggai chapter 1, he calls on them to consider their ways. He calls on them to shift their priorities. In the first nine verses of chapter 2, He gives them what they need to overcome the discouragement that they had in rebuilding God's house. And what we talked about last week in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, He talks to them about their sin. Even though they were rebuilding the temple and they had made that their number one priority, they were still continuing to live in sin. And God talks to them about how that sin was spreading in their lives, how that sin was impacting their lives. He calls on them in the present to turn away from it. So he's talked to Judah about the past. He's talked to Judah about the present. Now as we close out this book in verses 20-23, through 23, he's going to talk to them about the future. Again, he makes two promises to them about how he is going to act on behalf of his people. And as a result of those two promises, Judah could live without fear. They could rebuild the temple with great confidence because they're standing on the promises of their God. As we go throughout our rebuilding process, here in Mayfield, we're also looking to the future, aren't we? What is this rebuilding process going to look like? There's a meeting about that at the high school. I think it was just about a week ago, a, a sticky note meeting, about what is Mayfield going to look like in five years? When is this house going to be rebuilt? When is this business going to reopen? What are the headlines going to be in the newspaper as we work our way throughout this rebuilding process? Well, that's certainly important for us to consider and it's important for us to think about as a community, please don't lose sight of the main point of this book. The plea of the book of Haggai, we can't make the same mistake that the people of Judah made in our rebuilding process, is as we rebuild our town, as we rebuild our home, our community, we have to make sure that we keep first things first. Haggai teaches us that in rebuilding Mayfield, our number one priority has to be rebuilding God's house. Strengthening His church in areas where it's weak. Strengthening our relationships with God. Strengthening our relationships with one another. But then a question comes up. In that pursuit... What is the future going to look like? What is God going to do for us in the future? What kind of promises has God made for us in the future? As we seek God, and we seek His kingdom, as we seek His righteousness first in our lives, like Jesus commands us to do in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, what's going to happen in the future? As we seek to rebuild God's house in the present, what has He promised us in the future? Well, I want to suggest to you that God has made very similar promises to us as to what He made to the people of Judah. And it's based on those promises that we can live our lives without fear. It's based on those promises that we can live every day with great confidence. It's based on those promises that we can be exactly who God wants us to be. So let's consider in the last few verses of Haggai what God has to say to Judah about their future. And in that, let's consider what God has to say to us about our future. We closed out last week looking at Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 19. And you notice the very last sentence of verse 19. He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. God promises future blessings to the people of Judah. As we continue reading in verses 20 through 23, we find two of those future blessings. According to verse 20, this is the fourth message that God is speaking through the prophet Haggai. He's speaking on the same day as what we studied last week in verses 10 through 19. But even though he's speaking on the same day, he's speaking to a different audience. Last week we saw him speaking specifically to the priest. Here in verse 20, he's speaking to who we've been talking about throughout this study, a man named Zerubbabel. He was serving as governor over Judah under the reign of the king of the Medo-Persians. And it's to Zerubbabel that God makes these two promises. First, he promises the people of Judah, I will overthrow your enemies in verses 20 through 22. He makes that general promise by making four very specific promises. Notice when you look at verses 20 through 22, he first promises, I will shake the heavens and the earth. When you go back to the very beginning, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, what does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. And here in Haggai 2, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's the one who created it. Therefore, he has the right and authority to do with it whatever he desired. Judah was surrounded by nations who were their enemies. They were surrounded by nations who persecuted them, nations who conquered them, nations who caused them to go through so much hardship and so much difficulty. What does God promise? I'm going to shake them. Judah, just like they've shaken you, I'm going to shake them. I'm going to judge your enemies. I'm going to destroy your enemies. I'm going to overthrow your enemies. He says, number two, I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. There were kings, again, reigning around the nation of Judah who were persecuting them. Kings who were causing great difficulty in the lives of of God's people, God says it's not going to be that way forever. He says, I promise you one day, they're not going to be sitting on their throne. He said, I promise you one day, they're going to fall on their knees because I'm going to overthrow them. Well, God, how do you plan to do that? See, these nations who Judah considered to be their enemies, they were so much more powerful than Judah. They were so much stronger than Judah. How are they going to be overthrown? How are they going to be destroyed? Well, look at number three. He says, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. God says, what makes them so strong, what makes them so powerful, I'm going to bring to nothing. Their strength is going to be broken. Their power is going to be destroyed. And then he says, number four, I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. When one nation would attack another, what that looked like was a sea of chariots riding towards the nation who was being attacked. God looks out at all those chariots and says, I'm going to overthrow them. And I'm, he says, I'm going to overthrow them completely. He says in verses 21 and 22, I'll overthrow the chariot I'll overthrow the rider who's on the chariot. He says, I'm going to even overthrow the horses who are pulling the chariots. And what he says at the end of verse 22 about how he's going to do that is even more powerful. He says that the horses and their riders shall go down. How? Everyone by the sword of his brother. Just a disclaimer, I've never done this. I hope that you haven't either but it would kind of be like taking two cats and tying their tails together and throwing them over a clothesline. What are they going to do? They're going to claw each other to death. God says, that's what I'm going to do to your enemies. That's what I'm going to do to their armies. Judah, you're not even going to have to fight against them. You're not even going to have to pick up the sword because they are going to destroy, they are going to overthrow one another. See, he has four very specific promises that lead us to this general promise in verses 20-22, through I will overthrow your enemies. Judah, I want you to know, your enemies are not going to sit on the throne forever. I want you to know, they're not going to have power and authority and strength over you forever i want you to know that they're not going to cause pain and difficulty in your lives forever because i'm going to overthrow them whenever judah embraced that promise whenever they trusted in that promise they would be able to live their lives without fear they could stand before nations more powerful than them They could stand before nations who were stronger than they were with great confidence. Do you know why? Because they're standing on the promises of their God. God promises them, I will overthrow your enemies. Take a second to look to the future. What does God promise to us as sons and daughters of His? I believe He gives to us a very similar promise. I will overthrow overthrow your enemies on October 21st of 1805 there was a battle that took place a naval battle between Britain and France and the story goes one of the British generals as they were about to go out to this battle he saw two of his other generals fighting with one another in fact they were fighting and arguing so intensely he says they were about to kill each other they were about to pull out their swords and go to war against one another And so this general runs down. He steps between those two generals. He points his finger out towards the horizon. And he says, guys, don't fight each other because there's the enemy. You can see it. There's the one who we're supposed to be fighting. I would say that more than likely there are people and circumstances in our lives that we can do that to. There are people, there are circumstances in our lives where we can point our finger and say that's the enemy. That's who's been fighting against me. That's the person, that's the circumstance that's caused so much pain and so much hardship and so much difficulty in my life. You know, God points at our enemies, but not for the same reason that we do. God points at our enemies not to point them out, not to just acknowledge their existence, but God points to them to say, one day I'm going to overthrow them. For instance, there are people in our lives, aren't there, who have caused us to go through a great amount of trial and a great amount of hardship. What does God say about that? Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. What's the promise? I will repay, says the Lord. There are circumstances in our lives that cut us to the very core of who we are. There are circumstances in our lives that cause us to feel a great amount of pain. What does God say about that? Well, one day in eternity, the promise of Revelation 21 and verse 4 will become reality where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. According to the fifth chapter of First Peter, we all have an enemy. We have a common enemy as Christians in Satan. He's our adversary. He's our enemy who is constantly seeking to destroy us like a roaring lion. What does God have to say about him? Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10, we find what he's ultimately going to face, his destiny. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet were, and watch this, they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Satan wages war against you. He wants you to be tormented day and night, forever and ever. But ultimately, that's what's going to happen to him. Maybe we could go on and and we could list other enemies that we face on a daily basis. But you think about those examples. You think about the enemy that you might be fighting against in your life. What does God promise? One day, I'm going to overthrow that enemy. One day, I'm going to destroy that enemy. One day, that enemy is not going to sit on the throne any longer. One day, that enemy will no longer have dominion and control over your life. One day, that enemy is not going to be allowed to hurt you any longer. Because one day, God is going to overthrow them. Whenever we embrace that promise, it changes our lives. It changes the way that we live. Whenever we trust in that promise from God, we stand before our enemies without fear. We stand before our enemies with great confidence, even though we know how powerful they are. Why? Well, as Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 so powerfully proclaims, you know this verse, if God is for us, and He is, who in the world can be against us? Number one, as we look towards the future, as we think about headlines in rebuilding God's house, here's the first one, I will overthrow your enemies. The second promise that God offers in this text to the nation of Judah, specifically to the person of Zerubbabel, is I will raise up a leader in verse 23. Verse 23, remember, we're talking directly to Zerubbabel the man who was serving as the governor of judah under the reign of the medo persians god looks at zerubbabel who he identifies as my servant and he says i want you to know what i'm going to do with you he says on that day when i destroy all those enemies i've chosen i've made the decision to take you and to make you like a signet ring what is a signet ring I would say that nobody's more than likely wearing one of those this morning. A signet ring back in this time was worn by people who were in authority. On the ring, as you can see in the picture, was engraved either the name or the symbol of that person, the name or the symbol of the country that they were serving. They would use that ring to stamp various things in order to authenticate them. Like a legal document, a king would take the signet ring that he wears on his right hand and stamp it. And when you see the stamp of the king's signet ring, you know that it's been authenticated by him. It was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of leadership. Of course, speaking metaphorically, God looks at Zerubbabel and says, that's what you're going to be for me. You're going to be the signet ring on my right hand. You're going to be my symbol of authority and authentication. You're going to be the one who leads the people of Judah. You're going to be their leader. Zerubbabel, I'm raising up a leader, and I've chosen you. And that's what we see in the book of Haggai. That's what we see in the person of Zerubbabel in various other sections of Scripture. Zerubbabel was the leader of Judah, especially when they were rebuilding the temple. Like what we've been talking about in this book. But if we take a few steps further, I think there's an even deeper meaning here. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 19, you find that the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, ever since it came into existence, was ruled by King David's descendants. Well, it just so happens, 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 19, that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. He was a descendant of King David through his son Solomon. If you go back about a hundred years before this, whenever the people of Judah initially went into Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel's grandfather named Jehoiakim, sometimes he's called Koniah, was the king of Judah. And if you go to Jeremiah 22 and verse 24, God looks at Jehoiakim and says, I have removed you as my signet ring. I've cast you aside. You're not my symbol of authority. You're not my symbol of authentication any longer. About a hundred years later, about two generations later, we see a reversal of that, where God takes His grandson Zerubbabel and places him on as the signet ring, places him on as the leader. If you go to Second Samuel chapter seven and verse sixteen, going all the way back to the life of David, God promised David that His throne would stand before him forever. David would always have a descendant sitting and reigning on his throne. That's something that would last forever, as long as time endures. And so perhaps what's being said in this promise is not just that Zerubbabel is going to be the leader over Judah, but perhaps what is being said is that he's going to restore the Davidic reign. He's going to sit down as king on David's throne and rule over God's people as a descendant of David. But see, there's a problem with that. When we think about the person of Zerubbabel in the Old Testament and we, as we see him in the book of Haggai, that never happens. Zerubbabel never becomes king over Judah, even though he did serve as a leader. He was serving under the king of the Medo-Persians. He never sat down on David's throne. There was never a day where God destroyed all of Judah's armies under the reign of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was raised up as this leader and placed on God's right hand as a signet ring. It never happened. In fact, when the book of Haggai closes, we don't even know what happened to Zerubbabel. He fades away into history. So was Haggai wrong? Did God make an empty promise? I don't think so. I think in verse 23, what's happening, when God makes this promise to Zerubbabel, He's pointing towards an even greater Zerubbabel who is coming. When He raises up Zerubbabel as a leader, He promises to raise up an even greater leader in the Messiah who is one day going to come into the world. How do we know that? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you find two genealogies of Jesus. And in both of those genealogies, Zerubbabel is listed as an ancestor of the Lord. As a descendant of David, in both genealogies, Zerubbabel is listed as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. On both his mother's side, Mary, and his earthly father's side, Joseph. So what are we saying here? We're saying that while this promise was fulfilled in Zerubbabel in a very limited way, he was raised up as a leader. This promise was ultimately, and I would add perfectly, fulfilled in the person of of Jesus. When he looks at Zerubbabel and says, I'm going to raise you up as a leader, he's using Zerubbabel as a representative figure of saying, I'm going to raise up this leader one day, the Messiah, the person who we call Jesus Christ. Think about how he is the perfect fulfillment of this text. Jesus is the one who will one day destroy every enemy. Jesus is the signet ring on God's right hand. Jesus is the symbol of God's authority and authentication. Jesus is the descendant of David who is always going to sit on David's throne. Human leaders come and go, but Jesus will always sit on the throne of David serving as leader, serving as king over God's chosen people, the church. Imagine being Zerubbabel. Imagine being the people of Judah and hearing a message like that one. As they worked on the temple in the present, it would have gave them great hope for the future. As they worked for God and as they lived, who as God wanted them to live in the present, they would have looked forward with eager expectation to this leader that one day God was going to rise up. Just like God promises to Judah, I would suggest that He's promised to us as we've already hinted at, I will raise up a leader, and that's exactly what God has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, take a second to think about what the New Testament says about Jesus being raised up as our leader, the leader. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not just some. It's not just partial. Jesus says all authority, whether it's in heaven up there, whether it's on earth down here, He says it's been given to Me. He's the leader who has all authority. How do we respond to that? We submit our lives to Him. We submit ourselves to the Lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verses 9-11 through 11, says that God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every single name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. In other words, Everything has been subjected to Jesus. All things in all creation has been subjected to the leadership of Christ and specifically, He's been given His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God promised, I will raise up a leader and that's exactly what He's done in Christ. As we said a few minutes ago, one day Jesus is the one who is going to destroy our enemies. Jesus is the signet ring on God's right hand. Jesus is God's symbol of authority and authentication. He's the perfect reflection of God's nature. When we look at Jesus, we see God to a T. We see God's nature and love and law communicated perfect, perfectly. Jesus is the descendant of David who will for all of eternity sit on David's throne ruling over God's people. And as our leader, Jesus has made a promise to us. He has promised to us that one day He's going to come back. He says in John 14 and verse 3, for instance, that I will come again and I'll take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In the fulfillment of His promise, God has raised up a leader. The leader. Our Lord Jesus Christ. One day, He's going to come back for us. When we embrace that promise, again, it changes us. It changes the way that we live as we work for God in the present. We live with great hope. We live with eager expectation for the day when Jesus will come, when Jesus will claim us as His own, when we'll be swept up into eternity with Him to see His face from that day forever. I hope that the book of Haggai has been a challenging study for you. And I hope that you've not just enjoyed, but been challenged by walking throughout these couple chapters and these four messages that Haggai has to offer. It teaches us to keep first things first. It teaches us to have the right priorities That as we go throughout our rebuilding process in Mayfield, we have to seek God, His kingdom, and His righteousness first. Our first priority has to be rebuilding God's house. Strengthening areas where it's weak. Strengthening our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. God tells us in this book how we can overcome our discouragement in that. He calls on us to repent of and to turn away from the sins that oftentimes cling so closely. But then as we look at the last few verses, God invites us to look towards the future. To think about those headlines that are going to take place. We don't know exactly what the rebuilding process in Mayfield is going to look like. But when we set our minds and we set our hands to rebuilding God's house, God tells us what the future is going to be like. He's going to overthrow our enemies. He's raised up a leader And that leader is one day going to come and claim us as his own. Ultimately, the question is, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him enough to be obedient to Him? The question of Haggai is, as you look at the past, the present, the future, are you willing to make Him your number one priority in life? We're about to sing a song of invitation. And as we sing that song of invitation, I want you to think about that question. Are you willing to make Jesus the number one priority in your life. If you need to do that this morning, then make that decision. We'd love to help you in any way that we can as, as Ben comes and we stand and sing this invitation song.